0: The role of the modern day pastor and ministry leader is changing. More and more pastors around the world today are ministry leaders who are doing multiple jobs and wearing multiple hats. They are bivocational or co-vocational leaders. They may be pastors looking for creative ways to use their church or staff to create income and revenue for sustainability. They may be ministry leaders who are looking for ways to launch for-profit initiatives or integrate innovation into their organization. They may be those who want to do missions globally and find creative ways to create sustainability. Or they may be marketplace leaders who are called to stay in the marketplace, but want to be part-time pastors, lay pastors, start ministries, or nonprofits. This is the age of the new ministry leader. They wear different hats and do different things. They are technologically savvy and global. They are who God is using to make an impact in cities and communities around the world. This is the Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast, and these are their stories.
1: Well, welcome, everyone. It is great to be back here again, and I get a chance to talk with my co-host, Johanna, over in California. Hi, Johanna.
2: Hi, Tommy. Good morning.
1: Yeah. Hey, look, uh, as everyone as we're recording this. It's, Johanna, Is are things getting better in the L.A. area with the wildfires, everything like that, or uh, here you are sitting outside as we were talking?
2: It's, it's getting better in some areas. Um, we're back at high risk again because the winds, so um, you can keep us in your thoughts and prayers this week until those winds die down. Hopefully things don't get worse.
1: Got it. Johanna and I host our, this podcast for Together LA. She also works with Prison Fellowship, and we have the honor today of talking to Caitlin. And Caitlin, I, I'm just going to make sure that I have it right. Is it she? Did we? Did I get it right?
2: Chess. Chess. Yeah. Got it. Close. Yeah. <laughs> like well, chess, but yes. chess. Yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> we have the honor of talking with Caitlin Chess. Writer, THM student at Dallas Theological Students, her writing has appeared in Christianity Today, New York Times, Relevant, Sojourner, but more so today, our topic is going to be on her very first book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, which came out in this past September. But before we even talk about the book, Caitlin, tell me about yourself. I mean, you grew up in a military family. You traveled a lot. How Mm -hmm. in the world did you... Do all this and end up to what you are doing right now with a passion in politics.
3: Yeah, so yeah, I was a military kid, grew up all over the place, and then I went to Liberty University from 2012 to 2016, and so was in kind of a, a like, ground zero for, like, Christians and political engagement, and, and some really kind of, by the time 2016 rolled around, very, very political environment um, in some ways that were were kind of destructive to our community. Um, I think most of us would look back and say that, and so um, kind of had a front row seat to what it looks like when Christians are very involved politically in maybe some negative ways, but also... So, wanted to see what more positive ways there could be for us to be engaged. And so um, then I started seminary in 2016, which was kind of an accidental thing. I thought I was going to go to law school and then God really intervened and directed my path to seminary. And so really like last minute kind of made that decision and um, showed up at seminary and thought, okay, I'm leaving behind all of my interests I'd had before in law and in politics. And instead, you know, kind of found myself in the midst of a really divisive election in 2016, right as I started seminary and having people who were interested in someone with a little bit of that political background talking about it from a theological perspective. And so started writing and kind of, Didn't expect that to continue to be my life. But then after a couple of years of that, especially kind of diving into it um, theologically and and kind of in my studies, really started to feel like this is kind of what it's going to be for for my life, I think.
1: (laughs) Now, Caitlin, is that a new discussion? I I think a lot of times you, I'm reading your bio. You went from government over into American history, Mm -hmm. and then now you're taking this Uh, the THM, everything like that, is the intersection between faith and politics is a brand new discussion. Are people wrestling with it? Are there a lot of people uh, talking about it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think Christians have wrestled with it for pretty much all of our history, that's one of the things that was really exciting, being in seminary in a context where I was learning a lot more about church history than I ever had before, whereas when I was in college, I was sort of, you know, seeing one version of Christians engaging in politics and kind of, like most of us, assuming this is what everyone has always had. We've always done things the same way. And then learning history and and realizing you know, wow, there have been Christians fighting about these topics for a really long time. We've had Christians in very different um, situations in terms of how much political power they had or didn't have. And so honestly, it, it was the melding of those two worlds that made me realize, not only do we have, we need to have this conversation now, but we're really missing out on the wealth of resources we have through all of Christian tradition and history. If we think we have to figure it all out by ourselves with only the things we have today, we actually have, you know, a wealth of resources from the past that we should draw on.
2: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I love to think about, you know, I haven't really thought about all of the wealth of information that comes from the past um, to help us um, with our decision making in these areas. And I was reading through um, a couple of things you've written and um, there's one thing that, well, there's several things that really struck me. But I'm going to read I'm going to read you one of your own quotes Um, (laughs) and and then um, and then I have a follow up question. But um, you said in one article that I read uh, in one way or another, almost any political or moral issue is about the honor and protection of human beings. In reality, every piece of legislation is trying to legislate morality. Every policy issue is based on moral principles and has moral implications, figuring out how to apply the scriptural principle that God holds all nations of people accountable for the protection and honor of human life in political discussions today is tricky, but it must be attempted. So how do we do that?
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard. Um, Part of the reason I wrote that you know, those few sentences was because sometimes Christians will pit certain issues against other ones and say, you know, I'm dealing with a moral issue and you're dealing with a political issue. And part of what they're trying to say usually is I'm dealing with an issue we should all be able to agree on. And you're dealing with this divisive political issue instead of realizing that every political question in some way or another, deals with not only the presuppositions that we bring to that space with us. We're seeing this right now with a Supreme Court, you know, right. nominee who's being questioned about her faith and how it relates to her, you know, work as a justice. Those kinds of questions are true of everyone, whether Christian or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of really being honest about the fact that we bring our whole selves into, you know, the when we go to make our ballot, when we go to church, when we go to the grocery store, in our school, and recognizing that. Um, just so that we have a fair playing field for when Christians have these conversations. For example, with the upcoming election, a lot of Christians are saying, okay, I really care about the unborn, and I really care about, um, you know, immigrants and refugees, and I really care about um, issues of racism, and I really care. And the assumption is that those have to be pitted against each other, and you have to find the ultimate one, and then that has to determine everything else. And that's just not that's, that would be really great if it worked that way because it would be really simple and we could find maybe clear answers um, but instead of kind of saying my issue trumps all the other ones to be able to say okay every election not just the presidential election i'm gonna have to weigh a ton of different things and i might decide at the presidential level that this issue is the most important because of the moment that we're in or the power the president has as opposed to other kind of elected offices but then maybe lower down the ballot in my local area i know something about what's happening or something that's really important at this particular moment and so a different issue will become the primary one that causes me to vote you know differently down the ballot and we as christians have the freedom to know that because politics is not you know the god that we are serving it is not the thing that is going to ultimately you know really restore and redeem creation i think it gives us the freedom to be strategic in voting for things for different reasons with different motivations trying to seek all kinds of different good things instead of trying to pick one that's the the focus a hundred percent of the time
2: there seems like there's this tendency um, and and I grew up in a very you know Christian conservative evangelical homeschooled southern <laughs> southern family and it wasn't until I started working with um, international justice mission and I moved to DC that I began to see whoa not all Christians are Republicans I <laughs> literally didn't know that mm-hmm. until I started working in, in, um, in, in human rights in in in, in DC. And so, but it just seems to be that there's this sort of like black and white thinking. That's what I call it. Um, mm-hmm. among uh, many people, um, out there on both sides, it's, it's not one or the other, but it is, it's, it's like this or this. Yeah. And if you step outside of that, then I mean, I can remember being told you can't be a Christian and a Democrat. Mm-hmm. I was told that a lot growing up, mm-hmm. that black and white thinking. And then um, and it is sort of difficult and tough to s- wrestle with gray areas because yeah. the gray, there's not a, necessarily a lot of resolution there. Um, mm-hmm. And you have to just really trust yourself and trust your relationship with God and trust, you know, all of that. And and I love that there are people like you out there who are helping educate us and guide us uh, in dealing with the gray, because that's really what we need. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, you talk about, um, when I go to this, you talk about work as being both creational and anticipatory. What does that mean and how does that relate to politics?
3: Yeah. So sometimes um, Christians of all different kinds of traditions and backgrounds can have this way of talking about politics where, We might have to do it. We might think it's important, but we really talk about it as if it's kind of the mucky underbelly of the world, and and we have to dirty ourselves by getting involved in it, but it's kind of unfortunate. And there are really difficult things about politics and and divisions and and kind of compromises that sometimes are made that it makes it messy and mucky. However, part of the goal of of the book that I wrote was to say, could I paint a really hopeful, positive picture of how Christians can engage, not to say that we meet that 100% of the time, but to, to kind of hopefully inspire and motivate. And one of those things was to say, okay, from the very beginning in creation before the fall not only are adam and eve said to be made in the image of god but part of what that image means very quickly after that is to steward creation, to rule and to reign, um, to kind of be God's representatives on earth and to take the good things he has created and image him by being creative with those things. And I think that includes things like gardening or like whatever we might imagine of Eden, but also of just creating communities. And, and that will that's the kind of work that a lot of politics at its basis should be is a flourishing community that requires some norms to function. Um, in a sinful world, it will require us to kind of restrain people from harming each other. That wouldn't have been necessary, obviously obviously in, in creation, but just what it looks like to create a community. And then to see that really mirrored in Revelation where we don't have a garden, we have a city, the, the, the city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And this beautiful picture, not only of like, wow, you know, God is with his people. There's reconciliation. That's beautiful. Um, but also the image of a city then is also an image of human community and creativity and and them doing kind of the thing that was given at the very beginning, but in its fullest sense, not to just have redemption kind of revert us back to the beginning, but for redemption to really hopefully, I believe, kind of bring things in from creation that if we've been faithful to do justice, to, you know, restore families, any of those things that really witness the kingdom of God in some certain sense will be carried into eternity, appropriately perfected and redeemed. And if all of that's true, then that gives a lot more significance to our work today, as opposed to if we just think, well, it's all gonna burn. So like, what are we gonna do, you know?
1: (laughs) And Caitlin, you've been a huge history uh, study of Mm -hmm. American history. What are some of the lessons? What are some of the pivot points? What are some of the key points or defining moments as you look at the political system that we had As you, that really appear to you as you look at our American Yeah. History?
3: I mean, I think a lot of my focus has been in the later history in terms of um, how American Christians have engaged politically in just the last 50 to 100 years. And I think one of the lessons when we really kind of start studying that history, one, is We haven't always had the same relationship to government and to political power that we have now. Um, And that's important to learn on a really broad historical scale. If you go back even to like, the early church and all those kinds of things. But but I think it's important to realize that even the situation we're in now is a little bit unique for American history in terms of there was a period after the sexual revolution where evangelicals in particular were both kind of concerned about the way culture was going and also suddenly became more politically involved. And one of the lessons, and I talk about this in the book that's important, is a lot of times the story that gets told is you know Roe v. Wade happens evangelicals are really concerned about abortions, they become politically active. And I'm sure that that may have been true for some people. There might have been people who weren't politically involved until then. That's possible. But the real story by, you know, people who were really in the room with the moral majority religious right sort of people, the story is the IRS revoking tax exempt status for segregated schools. And the reason that knowing that kind of history is important exactly. is... Yeah. It's yeah. not just to be like, we were bad. It's not just to be like, let's all remember this, this evil thing, but to to recognize that there are always going to be, um, you know, sin that infiltrates our own communities and our systems and our own hearts. And to be honest about maybe some of the political power that was gained through that kind of history is not the kind that we want. And using that history to then help us make sure as we go forward, that we're not captivated by those same kind of impulses that wanted to protect things like tax exempt status for really a really wrong thing for schools that were segregated. Um, But if we tell ourselves a version of our story, I was just talking to the, to the women in my church about this in acts when it's like retelling the Jewish people, their own story very early on in that of saying like, you know, not only have you had this relationship with God, but here's how you treated the prophets. Here's how you, because knowing your own history matters. If you don't know your own history that you won't be able to move forward in a, in a positive way, and you won't realize how your history is shaping what you're doing now. You think you're just kind of making your own decisions, doing your own thing, but you're shaped by your own history. Um, and so, for evangelicals to be really honest about that is hard. I understand why, but it's really important.
2: I was just gonna ask you that. Are like when you talk about that history, because that's a new history that I just discovered um, a few weeks ago um, with the moral majority and and um, the wanting to pull funding from, from the segregated schools. When you share that in, the, in an evangelical community, what are the reactions you get? <laughs> how do people respond? Yeah, I mean, it's
3: it's interesting how committed people are to a certain form of the story. And so some people are pretty defensive about it. Um, I heard from someone recently that was really concerned that telling this story would reflect badly on pro-life activists today. Like you're, you're saying something bad about them. And and I wanted to be clear, like, I'm not saying that any of those current people are secretly trying to have segregated schools or, or anything like that, but that it's helpful for them to know their own history. Um, and that's not just true of this particular thing. That's true of, you know, the American church's relationship with with racism over, you know, all of our history. And and again, like the most segregated, not just our schools, but our churches. Um, but I understand why it's painful. And I try, I, I, I really try to be empathetic because I have found it's not difficult for me because of my disposition or what I don't know my personality. It hasn't been as really difficult for me to face some of this history. Um, but I've seen in other people where it just feels like it is disrupting their sense of identity. It's really difficult for them to take. And so trying to be empathetic, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of, I want Christian communities that are able to more faithfully engage with these issues in the future. And if I kind of run them over with facts now and I'm not careful for how they're dealing with this, then that's just not gonna make them into the kind of people that can that can appropriately deal with it in the future. Um, and so even in my own church, that's that's kind of the struggle.
1: Hey, Caitlin, let me ask you a quick question. Then how does pastors operate on the pulpit these next few weeks as they're preaching sermons on the election or small group leaders, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers teaching, what is an appropriate way to help people think? You don't want them to tell them, vote for one side or another, but you want them to help them think. Worse than the things that you encourage them to do?
3: Yeah. You know, one thing that's funny is that in the past, a lot of times churches have been places where people could get voter registration information, or they could be kind of given resources for getting access to the polls if someone needs to drive them or those kinds of things. Um, and we've lost some of that. And I think it would be useful for churches, not in a partisan way at all, again, like you said, not to get up and say, vote for this person, but to be places where we weren't so afraid of talking about politics that we couldn't even say... Hey like we have voter registration cards out in the lobby and like you can we just did that at my church not not too long ago before the deadline to register. Um but in terms of like really kind of spiritual guidance for people I think one of the things I would say is encouraging people to be able to check themselves over the next few weeks not just for kind of yes getting caught up in the media and and the news and learning all these things but also recognizing that their media consumption can be spiritually formative for them and so encouraging people to critically reflect on not just Am I watching too much news, which is an important question, but also the news that I'm choosing to consume, what desires, what fears, what loyalties is it instilling in me? Not because I have to completely isolate myself and not watch any of it, but because I have to critically reflect and say, okay, this is teaching me more than just political information. It's teaching me really what to love and what kind of good life to desire. And as Christians, we already have an answer to those questions and those should be the forefront of our minds. And so encouraging people to do that.
2: And and fear. You know, I think it feels a lot of fear, which, you know, from a, a Christian perspective, you know, Christ teaches us not that we don't have to fear.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And it's amazing how like I, I really think one of the greatest gifts that the church can offer the world right now is the freedom from existentialist threat mindset that so many of us have when it comes to politics of if this person wins or this person loses, that's the end of the my country, the end of my way of life, the end of whatever. And and uh, the election is really important. And especially for people who are more vulnerable than I am, who are more marginalized, it impacts them more than it does me. But again, I, I just think the gift that we can offer is saying, I'm going to faithfully engage. I'm going to you know, use as much wisdom as God has given me and do my research and be faithful but I'm not going to go in feeling constrained by a hyper pragmatism that says, if I vote this way or the other way, then like that could be the end of all life because we are resurrection people. So we we're not constrained by that kind of thinking.
2: Um, talk a bit more about um, you, you talk, you talk quite a bit about some of the political stories and you brought it up briefly here in this, um, in this interview, but talk a bit more about some of the political stories you see shaping modern evangelical Christians. I know one in particular is, um, is the prosperity, Mm -hmm. um, the story of prosperity. But but can you can you talk a bit more about that?
3: Yeah. So in the book, I talk about these four gospels, um, partially because I use the language of gospels, partially because they're spiritually formative stories, but also partially because most of us, I think if you were to go to a church, you know, I live in Dallas, there's so many churches, you could walk down the street, go to a church, ask the average person to write down, you know, what are the things you believe about the world and yourself and money and whatever, they would not write down any of these things. Like they know the right answers to have, but it's really a question of, what desires and fears and all those kinds of things are humming underneath the surface. And with the prosperity gospel, I think a lot of us tend to think like, oh, I know the prosperity gospel. That's like a preacher who's a televangelist with a jet and wants you to send seed money to like, you know, and there's that version. But there's also just all of our regular churches where we kind of believe that if you are wealthy, you have earned it. If you are poor, then you've done something wrong to deserve it. And we attach moral weight to those conditions. and And God, of course, wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And so if you are not just, you know what we tend to think of prosperity gospel would say if you have enough faith, but in a lot of our churches, it's if you're following the rules, if you're working hard, if you're not being lazy, if you're you're doing all the things you're supposed to do, then whether it's God or the free market or the universe, you will be rewarded appropriately. And if you're not, you've done something wrong, which when you say it all like that, I hope most Christians would say like, yeah, that is not like the story of scripture. That's not what Jesus would say. And yet a lot of times that's, what's motivating our, our work in the world. And I think it helps us, it helps us make sense of things. It 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 would it makes us feel better to think that things are really fundamentally fair. And if I have good things in my life, it's because I deserve it. That's, that's denying of like something really foundational to our faith, that all we have is grace um, and that anything that we have on earth is not our own, but God's. But it's really hard for we might write those things down in a doctrinal statement or something but those aren't usually the things that are driving our life
1: hey caitlin a lot of times even as you've been writing this book talking with this book everything like that what's the pushback that you hear from different churches different people as they interact with you
3: honestly the the biggest one that i tend to get is these things aren't as bad as you think that they are <laughs> that like you're being a little too harsh you know things are things are not that bad And, um, and I did try in the book and I, and I really, a lot of times what I'll say to those people is, I hope it's helpful for you in your context. If you think some of these things, you know, I have diagnosed as too serious of an issue, maybe that's true in your context and I hope there's still something helpful here for you. But I do think part of what is going on is like we're in a strange spot when it comes to the American church, especially for evangelicals, and I think some things are kind of crumbling around us and it's really scary and it feels better to try and just hold on to things the way they are and insist that everything is okay. Um and I think that looks a lot more like the prophets in Jeremiah that are saying peace, peace when there is no peace. And so um, I-, I want to really hold those criticisms um, as-, as being true of maybe the context of a person where they're at. Maybe their church is not struggling with these things as much. And yet sometimes I also want to say like, like maybe we're too scared to be as honest as we need to be about where things are.
1: Hey, Caitlin, one question is a lot of times, especially with the rise of social media, and when I start reading all of these different pastors or evangelical leaders candidating for a president, putting their support behind a particular elected official, is that new in this particular election in the last couple of years? Or as you've looked at history, has that always just happening and we just didn't know it because social media wasn't there?
3: I think it's been pretty consistently common. I think one of the things that's changed is social media. And then the other thing that's changed is is actually among predominantly white evangelical churches, there's suddenly some more diversity now where there wasn't. Like I see a lot of people today being like, we're so much more divided and we are very divided. But I also think maybe some of those divisions were between groups that there wasn't a lot of crossover before, and now there's division within groups that are pretty homogenous and that feels very new when maybe it really isn't as new as we
1: think. Got it. Hey, uh, sorry about that. As let me ask you a couple of other questions as we wrap up over here, Caitlin, is as you look at history is I I was talking with my friend Bob, who is in the financial world. He says, Tommy, the days of the moderates are gone. You used to have some of those on the left side working with those on the right side. Now everyone is there in their corner and they're not budging. What created that? What? Was it during this particular presidency or did we begin to see seeds of that happening in the last couple of terms?
3: Yeah, I think it's been, a little while now, one of the things that's interesting to me is um, some political scientists have really interesting data about how in just the last 20 years, people's party preferences have not changed at all, but their policy preferences are much more likely to change. And so people are very committed to a party. And if their party changes their position on a certain policy, then they're more likely to go with their party than to change their party because their party's policy changed. And so I I, I don't know exactly why. Um, I think there's lots of different reasons when it comes to, like you said, social media, also, to a lot of the ways that some of our communities are becoming more homogenous and we have more ability to just kind of stay isolated in the in the corners that we're in and echo chambers. Um, but I also think part of it is just, you know, as people, I think, are declining in their church participation, especially as Christians are are kind of, you know, growing up in the church and then leaving. I do worry that there is some element of this that is we no longer have a lot of us this shared overarching story about the world that tells us what's valuable and our place in it. And if you don't have that, then a politician is really happy to give you an alternative to that that says, this is the way the world is and this is your place in it. And so if you're going to politics to give you those kind of ultimate answers to things, then it's going to be more divisive. It's going to be more you know, pushed to either side because it's a purity test of not just your political position on a certain policy, but of I belong to this camp that tells me this ultimate story about the world. And that's that's really terrifying. And it's terrifying, especially I think when Christians get involved in that, people who proclaim to be followers of Christ, because we might be able to be a part of a party We might be able to vote a certain way, but we don't have an ability to submit the story of the gospel to a political party that will that will give us ultimate claims about reality.
1: Got it. Hey, last question, Caitlin. A lot of times I'm going to ask you to put your consultant hat on. If you had to speak to a group of baby boomers, what would you say to them?
3: Mm, You know, I, I, (laughs) I I think one of the, I think the thing that I would say is um, my generation is really excited about some things changing politically and in our churches. And yet my hope is that a lot of us are motivated not by just being the young people who feel like we have all the answers and are excited to change everything. But I think a lot of us are motivated by wanting to see some things change and looking farther back in history to kind of ground ourselves and feel rooted in something bigger than ourselves. And I think that's something that generationally we should be able to, that that could be the place of common ground for us to work together is not just you guys messed up and we feel like, you know, we're the ones that are going to fix things. I do think there are people my age that have that approach and I don't think that's particularly helpful, but I do think if we were to come and more forefront and say, I don't want to just come in and change everything. What I want is for us to feel more rooted in the global historic faith of the church and have that be a place where we're not so, Ah, uh, partisan. We're not so constrained by the politics of a very particular slice of history. Um, and would you? Would I feel like that's something you would be able to join me in?
1: If you were talking to millennials and Gen Z, what would you say to them?
3: Honestly, I think I would say the same thing. I would say a lot of us feel unsettled and unrooted. And the good news is that you don't have to leave the church to find something that is faithful in its engagement in the world and careful and justice oriented. And in fact, you might not find that by leaving and finding the super hip new church. You might find it by looking back in history and more rooting ourselves in in what Christians have done for a very long time. Mistakes as well, but lots of really faithful work uh, for justice in the world.
2: And I think, too, you know, an element of shame. You know, I read this really great post um, recently that said you don't have to vote the way your parents do. And um, yeah. you know, coming out of, a, out of a conservative where I was told certain black and white things and taught that, you know, I think, um, still unpacking even that shame that could come
3: mm-hmm.
2: with wanting to explore a different, <laughs> different, yeah. different um, political theologies and, um, you know, all of that kind of, and looking back at the history, because that is definitely not something that we were necessarily yeah. taught. Um, but you do have to to acknowledge that shame and overcome it and still say, I'm I'm still loved. <laughs> you yeah. know, I want to forge my own path, you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, as we wrap up, the book is a Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbors, uh, which just recently came out. And Caitlin, thank you for your time.
2: Thank you so much. This is so fun. I loved it, Caitlin. I can't wait <laughs> to, to talk to you again. This was so awesome. Thank you. Well, jo-
1: Johanna, I mean, Caitlin, we're going to have her on again. We're uh, going to do work with Carl K.J. Johnson, the C.S. Lewis Institute, as well as. Your professor uh, Daryl Bach, and we're going to talk about the Kuanin effect and this whole phenomenon that has affected the church and uh, the negativity it has created as well too. So, looking forward to having you back on. Thanks. All right, we'll, we'll talk soon, everyone.
0: Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Grow Center's Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast. To stay connected, make sure you subscribe to the Grow Center channel, rate and review this episode and make sure to share on your social media platforms. We would love for you to follow along with The Grow Center on Instagram and Facebook at Grow Center Network and our website at www.thegrowcenter.com. See you next time.